My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. Good to be with you here this morning. Before I dive into today, just a curiosity question. Have you ever run into a passage in the Bible that just doesn't sit right? You know, maybe this doesn't, just doesn't ring true or maybe feels maybe out of touch or out of date. Maybe even causes you to question whether the Bible is an authoritative source for life. I bring that up because for some in the room or some tuning in, the passage today may be one of those passages. All right. Just want to say that right up front. In fact, I want to put the first verse up here of our passage today and give you an idea of what I mean. In the same way, you wives must accept the authority of your husbands. Did it just get hot in here? Oh, by the way, I haven't introduced myself. My name is Taylor. Uh, you can reach me at taylorv at isunrise.com. No, if we haven't met, I'm Shane, one of the pastors here. That's, that, that's a tough one, right? It's one of those passages for many of us, you know, quaint, old-fashioned, surely not relevant for the modern age, right? Or to borrow some current cultural terms, patriarchal, misogynistic. Or is it? So just right up front, I just want to declare, the Bible is for all time. It's for all time. No matter when it was written, it's for all time. And those of us who seek to master it, discover along the way that it masters us. And so we run into passages that, that don't sit right, that, that, don't, that don't feel right or whatever. We have the opportunity there to do what everything we get to do in life is, and that is start by faith. Start by faith. We start by saying, God, I, I, I don't understand this. I, right now, I don't even like this, but I trust you are good, and I trust your word has something for me. So we ask God for you to give us understanding. And then you know what we do? We get to work seeking to understand it. So that's what I want to do today. But before we dive into the passage, I just want to pray because we're going to need it. Or maybe... I'm just the one that needs it. So would you pray with me? Father, believing that you are sovereign over all, 
You are from eternity past. You will always be in eternity future. Right now we are just in this small sliver of time. And so we ask for you to bring your wisdom, your eternal wisdom into our temporary place right now. Grant us wisdom, grant us hope, grant us joy. We pray, believing, asking in Jesus' name. Amen. So our first order of business whenever we approach any passage in the Bible is to set it in its context. Okay, so if you've been here for the, through the fall, we're walking through this letter called First Peter, the series we're calling Joyful Exiles. And this guy, Peter, who walked with Jesus, is writing to a church in the first century. And he has a lot to say to them. But, but number one, he wants to introduce his readers. He want to introduce, wants to introduce us to this good, gracious, generous, loving God who invites us into his life. That's what he's inviting us into. And we get in on the life of God, first of all, by trusting in the name of Jesus, by putting our trust there. And through Jesus, we are invited to be a part of the family of God, to borrow what Peter said at the beginning, to share in the inheritance. Wow, with Jesus. We can know that when we put our trust in Jesus, our hope is secure because Jesus is sure. Our hope is solid and trustworthy because Jesus is solid and trustworthy. Our hope is alive because Jesus is alive. And we have hope because our citizenship is in heaven. It's not here. We are exiles here on earth. And we can know because we are exiles here that we will face adversity. It's part of what comes with it. So the question is, what will we do in adversity? And, and what, what Peter calls us to do is to, to, have, to, hope, to have hopeful, joyful obedience. That's what he invites us into. Through the adversity, because he wants us to, our lives to draw attention to our good God. Well, the letter of Peter structurally follows a common format that New Testament letters follow. The first part of the letter lays out foundational truths about God and about life. And then from that point forward, it applies those. Oh, I'm still here. Yeah. Five, five. We apply those. I am skipping out. Are we okay? I will keep going and we'll see. They'll, they'll come rescue me if I need to. So we're going to apply those transitionals, those, 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 uh, trans, those, those truths to four arenas in life, to government, to work, to home, and to church. That's the rest of the letter of 1 Peter that he wants us to apply those. And so the first part of the letter through verse 12 is the foundational truths, and from that point forward, it's applying those truths. And if you remember, remember a couple of weeks ago, we had Pastor James talking about submitting ourselves to the government authorities. It was right before the election, and we're looking at the election, and we're wondering if I don't, this candidate, that candidate, we can put too much hope in the candidate, and really it's about submitting to government authorities. Not because the, no matter who's in office, not because they are somehow wonderful, or no, it's because we want to obey and, and, and trust in God's sovereignty, no matter who's there. So we willfully choose, willfully, freely choose to put ourselves under their authority, not based on their authority, but based on God's sovereignty. And Sometimes our reaction is, well, I don't like that authority or that authority is causing me trouble, causing me adversity. So that gives me permission to, to disobey, right? Well, no, it will lead to suffering. And in fact, Peter says to then embrace the suffering. Why? Because, well, that's what Jesus did. So understand, this isn't about being a doormat. It isn't about being a pushover. It isn't about being soft or weak. This is not about playing the victim, 
There's, it's not even close. There's something more important going on. What we are doing is we are following our Savior Jesus into the magnificent work of embracing, of being, of embracing and exercising upside-down power. Exercising upside-down power. That's what we're being invited into. So kind of a theme that you can have in mind for today as well as for, these, for how Peter is applying this. You can think of it this way. Hopeful, gracious submission displays tremendous power by freely giving up power. Hopeful, gracious submission displays tremendous power by freely giving up power. And again, why do this? Because Jesus did. That's what Pastor Taylor just talked about a few minutes ago. Peter described it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. You know, amazingly, we have tremendous pictures of this from the last 100 years of this kind of power. These are iconic images. You probably recognize them right off the bat. We have Gandhi. We have Martin Luther King Jr. We have Tiananmen Square. I still vividly remember this. I was watching it live. We have Nelson Mandela throwing over apartheid in South Africa. All of them displays of people who, who, who display tremendous power by choosing not to exercise power. We have more in, the, in recent days across the world. We have in Ukraine and Tunisia and Belarus and Myanmar, all different parts of the world, different cultures, different ethnicities. But we see something very similar here. Tremendous displays of power by choosing not to exercise power. Well, today's passage brings Peter's message home, quite literally. So let's dive into the passage, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3 and going through verse 7. So in the same way, you wives must accept the authority of your husbands. Then, even if some refuse to obey the good news, your godly lives will speak to them without any words. They will be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. Don't be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. You should clothe yourselves instead with the beauty that comes from within, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is so precious to God. This is how the holy women of old made themselves beautiful. They put their trust in God and accepted the authority of their husbands. For instance, Sarah obeyed her husband Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters when you do what is right, without fear of what your husbands might do. In the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should, so your prayers will not be hindered. Now, to receive and understand what Peter teaches here, we need to set his words here in the context of the greater biblical narrative about gender and marriage. And in particular, we need to go back to where the story starts, in particular in Genesis chapter 2, in the creation narrative, to find out what, what it, what's going on in terms of gender and marriage. And so I want to go to chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 15, real quick. It says, The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat of the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure, you, you will sh- are sure to die. And so what we get here is a glimpse into what we might call biblical masculinity. Biblical masculinity, we could sum up like this. God empowers the man with strength for mission. 
Okay, God formed him out of the ground before this is before the woman's on the scene, formed him out of the ground and put him to work. Got him partnering with God in the mission of caring for the world around him. And he gives him instructions. You are to do this and not to do that. He gives him strength for mission. The story goes on. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed the ground from, from the ground, all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, all the wild animals, but still there was no helper just for him, just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while the man slept, which is a good point there, while the man was doing nothing, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made, and I think a more dynamic translation would be fashioned, crafted a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, "Mm, too weak. Yeah, the translation. It's more like, wow. Okay, just to give you an idea there. This one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. And here we get the the seedbed, if you will, for biblical femininity, which we might sum up this way. God empowers the woman with beauty for relationship. Okay, we see that there, fashioned, you know, and, and, and fit for him, a helper suitable for, a partner with. It's for the relationship aspect of it. This is biblical masculinity and femininity embedded in creation before sin entered the picture and mucked it all up. Another way we can think about this, I, found, I have found to be very helpful, that there's a core question hardwired into every woman's heart. And that question is, Am I beautiful? Am I lovely? Am I worth pursuing? You get the sense of that there? Now, this is, involves physical beauty, absolutely, but it's so much more than that. This is, about, this is about a heart design, a heart beauty. There's a core question also hardwired into the heart of a man, but it's a different question. That question is, am I strong? Am I capable? Do I have what it takes? So again, it involves physical strength, absolutely, but it's so much more than that. This is about purpose, achievement. Just as a quick parenting aside, by the way, uh, our, our kids from the youngest of ages are asking us as parents the, to answer that question for them. And I believe it's the number one job of a parent to answer that question over and over and over in tangible ways. Ultimately, pointing them to God, their maker, and their father in heaven, who who ultimately will answer the question for them. And we can know through the gospel, one of the aspects of the gospel that is so wonderful is the answer is always yes in Christ. Always yes in Christ. And we can know that from the inside out. Now, I realize this is an oversimplification. It is. But it's a good one. It's a good one. It's really helpful. And at this point, I want to say something I'm going to say all the way throughout my message is, I want you to be clear on what I'm not saying. I need to do that in today's world. What I'm not saying. I'm not saying that a woman can't offer strength, and I'm not saying that a man cannot display beauty. I'm not saying that. Too often we go to extremes as a way of disproving general truths. In other words, we make things compete that are intended to complement. That's not what we're doing here this morning. It's not what we see in Genesis chapter 2. Gender was designed to complement, different, equal equal value, different. 
And then marriage is also there in Genesis 2. It's the next verse in Genesis 2.24. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united as one. What explains? Well, just the story we just read. This is what the man is. This is what the woman is. This is how they come together, how they're made for each other, complement each other, complete each other, become one together. Marriage is in just as much a part of the creation story as orangutans, whales, oceans, and clouds, my friends. It's not a cultural construct. It's embedded in creation. In the creation story, the man, and here we get, is given in leadership, is given initiative, or just to kind of poke the hornet's nest, given authority in the marriage. But the goal is not dominance. The goal is oneness, so that they may become one. That's the purpose of it. Well, that's Genesis 2. Before sin enters the picture in Genesis 3. But we live in a world on the other side of Genesis 3, turned upside down by sin. Well, see, what happens is because of sin, we misuse our power. Notice how I, des- I described masculinity and femininity in terms of power. We are empowered with strength. We are empowered with beauty. Well, sin causes us to use our, misuse our power for our own benefit. In other words, sin causes us to always try to bend circumstances to our advantage, to make life work for me, for number one. In all sorts of ways, we seek to make life work apart from God and his best. And this profoundly affects gender. Now, because of sin, and a, sin a woman misuses her beauty and relational power through seduction, relational manipulation, and verbal insistence. A man misuses his physical and missional power through intimidation, arrogance, and contempt. This leads to husband and wife interactions like the one humorously stereotyped in this recent commercial. I think we should have taken a left at the river. Tarzan, no. Where Tarzan go? Tarzan does not know where Tarzan go. Hey, excuse me. Do you know where the waterfall is? Waterfall? No, no. Me, Tarzan, king of jungle. Why don't you want to just... If you're a couple, you fight over directions. It's what you do. If you want to save 15% or more on car insurance, you switch to Geico. It's what you do. You have to do that right in my ear. <laughs> Captures it well, doesn't it? I can't... I watch that dozens of times. It makes me laugh every time. Tarzan, no, where Tarzan go? Oh, man. It's funny to me anyway, because I think my wife and I have fought over directions uh, all 30 years of our marriage. <laughs> You know, but it's just, it's, it's funny because it taps into something true, something true. And it's good to laugh. Absolutely. It's also good to be sobered because what happens between husbands and wives as a result of sin is often tragic and destructive. And so before I go any further, I want to address the elephant in the room. Saying that husband has, husband has authority in marriage is massively countercultural right now. Massively. We've spent decades in Western culture throwing off shackles of rigid gender stereotypes that have caused great harm. They have. For centuries, Bible passages like this one in 1 Peter have been used to suppress demean and even abuse women. And so I just want to be clear right here, right now, what we're about to go into. There's no room for violence. 
I want to speak to the men particularly at this moment. There's no room for violence because I know I have to say that because it exists in the church in marriages. So that's not what this is about. There's no room for that. In fact, this is a legacy we need to continually repent of. Continually. Unfortunately, along the way, by losing sight of what is good, which is God's design for marriage, we, we, in our pursuit of gender equity, we often end up with gender anarchy. And that's where we are as a culture. But you know what? We're not the first ones to get there. Gender anarchy also existed in the first century. That's why Peter wrote what he did. Peter wanted to take what was true in the creation narrative and say, how do we live this out in this culture? And that's our job as well. So what I want to do is I want to walk through these verses. We already read through them, so I just want to walk through and highlight different phrases along the way so that we might understand what this means for us in our culture. So first, I want to say, you know, in the same way, this is where Peter links it back to what he talked about in chapter 2. Remember, he's applying foundational truths, first to government, then to work, now to home, and then he will apply it to the church. So in the same way, now, you wives must accept the authority of your husbands. Now, The New Living Translation is doing us a little bit of a favor here, or trying to anyway, because this phrase, accept the authority of, there's a Greek word behind that. It's the same Greek word used several times because Peter's making the same point. If you go back and read chapter 2, it says submit. Submit yourself to governing authorities. Uh, It doesn't say that here. Why? Well, because let's just say submit and marriage. uh, Let's just say that word has a little baggage. Little baggage, right? And again, right, we're admitting to that. It does have a lot of baggage. It has been misused. Notice how it's saying, submit to your authority, submit to the authority of your husbands, even if some refuse to obey the good news, which is the gospel. Uh, in this, we don't know if these were unbelieving husbands, people who didn't go to church at all, who didn't believe in Jesus, or some who said they believe, but they're not following through on it. We don't know, but it doesn't matter because the call is to choose to willfully, freely choose. Not because of their worthiness, but because of God's design. That's what the invitation is. Now, what I want to be clear on, and again, I'll say this several times, what I'm not saying, what this scripture is not saying, all women are subject to all men. All women are, are come under all men. It's not what it's saying. This is about marriage. This is about design that God had in mind for marriage. Notice that, that uh, Peter says, with, without any words. Now, this is not some kind of law he's laying down for marriage that a woman should, must never speak. Nope, not at all. Peter knows the danger zone for women when experiencing adversity. There's a danger zone, and that is to misuse her power. Misuse her verbal and relational power to, shall we say, make something happen in the relationship. This is where the stereotype comes in of the nagging wife. Hollywood makes lots of money off of that stereotype. Why? Because there's an element of truth to it. There's a temptation here, ladies, wives, when your husband doesn't get it, doesn't do it right, completely makes a mess of things, is there not a temptation to say, well, he didn't hear me the first time, so I better say it again. Only this time I better add a little something, you know, add a little force to it, add a little sarcasm in there to make sure he gets the point. Is that not a temptation? That's what Peter is speaking to. A woman will sinfully use her relational and verbal power, directly or indirectly, to bend the situation to her advantage. 
So instead, Peter says, win them through your conduct, your respectful and pure conduct. Where here he's applying a general theme that's linked back to those foundational truths of how, what it looks like to follow Jesus. Because this is what Jesus did, so likewise do the same. Peter then addresses external adornment. And again, he's not laying down a law of some kind that somehow, ladies, you must be plain. No, this is about the misuse of power. So in addition to trying to use her verbal and relational power to make something happen, a woman will be tempted to try to use her physical beauty to make something happen. Because a woman's beauty is powerful and effective. Is that not why? advertisements selling innumerable things will put a, a, a scantily clad woman, you know, that, that, that expresses something of the modern age's idea of beauty to sell the product. Why do they do that? Because it works. It's effective. It sells things because a woman's beauty is powerful. And all the while, it's doing great damage to women's souls. Peter says there's something better and more amazing and more powerful than external beauty in that. He says, he says it's a beauty that comes from within, and that's the key here. And it's an unfading beauty, because we know that external beauty is going to go away. But there's this unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Beauty starts from the inside, from God's unique design of the feminine soul. You, you, you as a woman reflect something uniquely of God that nobody else ever has or ever will. It's something amazingly beautiful. And it's a picture, he says, of, it's a quiet and, and, it's, and it's gentle. Now, quiet doesn't mean silent. It means it can also be translated peaceful. It's the idea of here of a soul at rest. I know I'm beautiful because God has endowed me with beauty. And so then it can flow out through appropriate dress, makeup, jewelry, and all that, all the things that enhance that beauty. Absolutely. So Peter is asking, where are you going to put your trust? How are you going to use your power? What power are you going to try to use or misuse? And then to drive his point home, he, he links this, this the, the, the story that he's, he's speaking to first century women living in Asia Minor, but he links it back to the long story uh, all the way back through what he calls the Holy Women, which all goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. And then he picks a particular illustration there in verse 6, and it immediately would arouse an intense reaction from some who read it. You know, notice there. Sarah obeyed her husband Abraham and called him her master. That's the example? Great patriarchal, misogynistic, right? Throw it out. It's hopelessly outdated, right? That would be wrongfully applying current cultural norms onto the text. Instead, let's roll up our sleeves and figure out what Peter's going after here. He's talking about, of course, Abraham and Sarah, all the way back to the patriarch stories in the early, in Genesis. Uh, But if think about it. if his point was to show and illustrate how Sarah was obeying Abraham no matter what, then he probably would be talking about a story that happened. And it's, you may be familiar with one. It's where Sarah and Abraham, they were experiencing famine where they lived. And so they were going to move to, to Egypt. And, and, and so as they're heading down there, Abraham has this thought. He goes, whoa, wait a minute. Sarah's beautiful. I mean, she's amazing. And when we get down there, Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, you know what he's going to do? He's going to kill me. And he's going to take her to be part of his harem. Of course, she's amazing. So he comes up with an idea. Get this one. This is a great one. Okay, Sarah, pretend you're my sister. 
which of course means that Sarah's going to take her and put him in Barbara's harem. But what happens? Abraham gets to save his own skin. Great plan, guys, right? Yeah. You know what Sarah does? She follows through with his harebrained idea. In a sense, she obeys. She submits to it. Now, is that what Peter has in mind? The answer we can know is no, because Sarah never refers to Abraham as master in that passage. There's only one place where where Sarah refers to Abraham as master, and it's a completely different context. It's found in Genesis chapter 18. In that story, God shows up to Abraham, and he tells Abraham, Sarah, your wife's going to have a baby even though she's 90 years old. Sarah's in the room next door at some kind of tent or something. She hears through the walls that she's going to have a baby at 90, and in her response... In Genesis 18, she laughed silently to herself, to herself, and said to herself, how could you, how could a worn out woman like me enjoy such pleasure? Especially when my master, my husband, is also so old. Hmm. There's no thought there that she is somehow submitting to some harebrained idea or anything like that that of Abraham's. So why is Peter referring to this story? We don't know for sure, but I suspect that he wants to have us to see a quote-unquote uh, behind-the-scenes story to, to illustrate how Sarah had a default respect for Abraham. And we think about it in today's world, what, how you can think about it is, so, so wives, when you think about or speak about your husband, maybe you're with some friends, and how do you think about him and how do you speak about him? Is it, oh, you wouldn't believe what my husband did yesterday. <sighs> what an idiot. You know, or my husband, he never, or my husband, he always, what? I can't believe it, okay? You get what I'm getting at there? By what you're thinking and what you're saying, do you communicate a default respect or a default disrespect? That is what I think Peter wants to get at here. And it's, what's going to make a difference is where your heart is. How are you going to use your power in the relationship? That's what Peter is getting at. So Peter then, at the end here, gets to the heart of the matter. Wives, what's going to motivate you in the relationship? Are you going to trust God? Are you going to, are you going to do what's good? Or are you going to give in to fear and then misuse your power to try to bend the marriage to your advantage? That's what Peter is getting at. Well, then he turns his attention, of course, to husbands. And this should get us our attention, as we read all the way through the letter, it should get our attention, because in the previous chapter, when he's talking to government and works environment, he didn't speak to the other side. He just said, submit to, submit to, if you're in this situation. So all of a sudden, now we have husbands brought in, which should give us a picture of how marriage, that mutuality of marriage that we saw back in Genesis 2, is what puts on display the goodness of God. That's why he says in verse 7, In the same way. So there's some kind of default respect, deference that that does come through for husbands. But what he doesn't do is repeat the submit to that he has repeated three times prior. So there's something similar and there's something different. There's a default respect, a a willingness to defer, a willingness to serve that is a similar. But then there's this uh, this leadership or this authority piece. So how, guys, how husbands, are you going to use your power, your missional power for the good of your relationship? That's what now he's going to, that's what he's going to lean into. And how do you do that? Well, you must give her honor as your wife. Treat your wife with understanding, or maybe a better translation would be according to knowledge. Treat your wife according to knowledge. 
You may wonder, or you should ask, well, knowledge of what or understanding of what? And to that, I just say of everything, <laughs> everything, her, you, God, God's word, the kids, the home, the, the finances, everything lead from a place of knowledge. So where do you get that knowledge? Well, there's an old axiom. Readers, leaders are readers and readers are leaders. Leaders are readers and readers are, are, are leaders. If you want to know how to lead, gain the knowledge, read. I don't know how many guys I tell that to. And the answer I give is I don't read books. I don't read books. And I'm like, so? You don't want to read a book? Okay. But there's lots of things we do in life we don't, we don't know what we don't want to do. Do it anyway. It's a call. It's a great call to use our strength for mission. Now, if you don't like to read print on a page, you know, we got these, you know, we, you know, you can audiobooks, podcasts, YouTube conferences. There's plenty of places to get knowledge. It's not a matter of can we, it's a matter of will we, will we take it seriously? So many guys, we beg that we beg off home and relationship and marriage to our wives thinking she knows better about all that stuff. And you know what? You're right. She does. It's designed into her more so than it's designed into us, but that doesn't let us off the hook. And there's another thing that's really important, I think, in that term knowledge, and that is not just in general knowledge, but specific knowledge to her, to her feminine soul. Guys, to pursue and to know your wife, to go out on a date and to ask her, what's going on in there? What, what, are, what are you afraid of right now? What are, you, what are you dreaming about right now? And then to give her the three words she wants to hear more than anything else. Well, okay, the second three words. The first three, three words you want to hear more than anything else is, I love you. I know you said it on your wedding day, but keep saying it. It's a good thing. The other three words are, tell me more. Tell me more. Be a student of her feminine soul. Truth is, men, marriage will constantly confront you with your sin and selfishness. It will. It's part of what marriage is designed to do. And that's a good thing if, if we will turn from our sin and our ways of trying to make the marriage, bend the marriage to work to our advantage. Let your marriage grow you up into mature manhood by living with your wife in an understanding way. Secondly, Peter highlights, he says, he says she may be weaker than you are. Uh, and you know, he's not demeaning women there. He's declaring biological fact. There's a reason that the Olympics, men and women don't compete together and other things that require brute strength because most of the time men or women are stronger than women. So what are you going to use your strength for? And again, I just want to speak to, is there's, this is no room to violence. There's no room to use our strength to make our wives do what we want to. That goes against the idea of, of, of honoring your wife, of treating her with understanding. No, she is your equal partner in God's gift of salvation. No, there's no room for demeaning, no room for tearing down. This is about building up. This is about making her life better, honoring her. Now, if you don't know where to start, husbands, I hope that you catch me here. I'm trying to give you some real practical things. So a real practical way to do that here is you be the one to use the word let's. As in, let's go on a date. Let's go for a walk. Let's, let's read a marriage book together. Let's, let's talk about how we're parenting our kids and how what we can do differently. Let's take a look at our finances and see how we can free up money to be generous. Let's, let's, you be the one to take the initiative it's for her good. It's not about demanding, and it's not about avoiding. This is about inviting. Inviting her onto mission to serve our good God and to follow Jesus. Peter ends his instructions 
to the husbands with a pretty powerful warning. Notice that? You ought to do this so your prayers will not be hindered. Peter basically saying, you think you can misuse your power with your wife and then go to God to ask for help? Hmm. You might want to think about that. You might want to think about that. So to sum up, and I could say so much more here. 1 Peter 3, mutuality in marriage, bringing things together that are intended to complement, not compete. This is about using feminine power to serve your husband, about using, using masculine power to serve your wife, to come underneath, to follow Jesus in this display of upside-down power. No matter the adversity, no matter the hardship, and my friends, we are facing a lot of adversity and hardship right now. It's going to press on our relationships. Relationships are being tested right now. I know it. I just got another email last night. We're getting lots of emails of couples right now who are really struggling because that's what adversity does. So let's lean into God's design. Let's lean into this mutuality. One way you can do that is to choose to, let's, let's, let's dig in a little bit here. I just want to put up three books right here because these are three books. I could talk for a long time about this. In fact, I've already talked too long. But these three books have similar themes, kind of go into greater detail. So I invite you to, to use this time that you're stuck at home anyway, to, rather than watching another show on Netflix, do this together. In fact, guys, I'm talking to you now. This is an opportunity for you to say, let's. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you, you, you presented a road to us of joyful submission. And sometimes it's, it, we just don't understand it. It goes, it's very countercultural. It goes against what we're inclined to do. Would you empower us by your spirit to follow you in this way, to exercise power by actually releasing power like you did? Peter, the one who said, where else would we go for the words of life? That's what we're coming to you for, Jesus, is the words of life. That's what you have. I know it's hard. Many others will turn away, but we want to cling to you. So would you give us knowledge about how we might do that? Especially, especially those of us who are married right now. Would you help us to live this out well, to display mutuality to the world around us, that the world around us might know that you are strong and you are good. Amen.